Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. A friend said the other day that he was talking about songwriting sessions, and he said they're friendship accelerators. But occasionally, a podcast is like that. And I, I was looking, Bo, it was, it was like five years ago that you and I yep. did our first pod together. And since that time, you know, we've become the fine of kind of friends who, uh, you know, go to houses and visit each other there and hang out and have dinners and text uh, with a lot of regularity. And, and so it's just uh, a great treat to talk to you with, with mics again. And it's also great that uh, most of the time we're talking, there aren't microphones there. Dude, I've been like waiting to do something that merited a return, to be perfectly honest. Like once this happened, I was like, oh yeah, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta get back on this, man. So I'm glad, glad, glad to be back. Me too. Bomani Jones is uh, the uh, host and an executive producer of uh, Game Theory on HBO. It debuted Sunday night Uh and uh, by the time you're listening to this, a second episode will have aired. I loved, right? Well, wait, no. When is the next episode airing? Sunday. Sunday is the Sunday. 20th. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time you hear this, a uh, second episode will have aired, and there are going to be at least four more coming right away. And the show's so smart and sharp and funny and sardonic and, uh, Bo, do you think this is the closest you've gotten to be in in terms of on, on a show where the show itself reflects your point of view, that the whole thing reflects your point of view? Oh, it's the only time um, that's ever happened, like other than like podcasts and stuff like that. And part of it, of course, is um, most ESPN shows involve payers, right? So it's not as though people were just holding me back on it necessarily. But I have never had a show that I felt consciously even went so far as to lean in to what specifically I was doing. So like when I do Highly Questionable, like Around the Horn is different because you got your own square and you can do whatever you want in there. I got Highly Questionable and it was a show that was already formed around somebody else's experience and personality. And literally, we just pulled up a chair. Like that that was the only change that was made. Two shot went to a three shot and we pulled up a chair. And High Noon, I think a format was created that was hoping to accentuate um, the strengths of the host, but it wasn't really about like the personality and viewpoint necessarily. This show here, if you look at episode one, from minute one to minute 34, because they were kind enough to give us extra time, from minute one to 34, all of that in some form or fashion is coming straight from my brain into a team and being like, okay, so how do we make this all come to life? I've never had anything like that before. And I must say, it's a lot of fun. Yes, I'm sure that there's also pressure attached to that. And, and, and in a way, I wonder about, you know, as you know, I loved the version of Highly Questionable with you because it did feel to me like you were able to, in the version with you, Dan and Poppy, you were able to counterpunch in a way that did express and help you find, it felt as a viewer, help you find the way you want to translate your voice for mass communication. Was that right. true? Is that accurate? Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. Like a big part of what Highly Questionable did for me was having that old man next to us allow me to show, I think, some elements of my personality that people might not have seen. Like I think that there's a like kindness and care to me 
that I don't try to hide, but I don't think the stuff that I normally do necessarily gives you an opportunity to see it. And so being there with Dan and Gonzo, I think that element of me kind of came out and I have no problem like counter punching for the right person. You know, like I'm coming on the, the show that was Dan's show and it's in Dan City and he was kind enough to take his name off the marquee and everything else. And I figured out pretty early that there was some ways in which Dan was just always going to be Dan. And so I could figure out how to get in and work off of what he was doing. I could figure out how to help. And on the days where, you know, a lot of those days, man, Dan's doing three hours of radio, then walking straight onto that set. And so I know I got to come in some days and I got to pick up the slack because it's just a lot to ask of anybody to do as much as he was doing at that time. And so I learned how to, I learned a, like you said, kind of how to like figure the voice out that I wanted to have a bit more and figure out some places where I needed to make changes in the ways um, that I was approaching things. But I also think that a big part of it and maybe the biggest part that's going to come through on this show is I was studying at the altar of a master interviewer. Like I learned how to interview people on television from sitting with Dan. And it was actually funny because when we first started doing it, we tried to do the interviews where I would lead them sometimes and it just didn't work because he was so much better at it than I was. And he misinterpreted that and thought that it was because I had a lack of interest. But my job was just to sit there and wait for him to ask a question that got a better answer than he realized it had gotten and then jump in and get into the depths of it. So Jimbo Fisher talks about being raised by, you know, his father working in the coal mine. I got the perspective to know and understand, all right, so how important was it for your father that you not wind up in that mine? Like my daddy grew up in a town with a hardwood mill where his dad worked and his dad's number one goal was to make sure none of his boys wound up working in that mill. You know, like those, that was what my job was on that. But I learned, I learned from Dan A, people are more willing to answer questions than I probably thought. And also how to keep going if you don't get the answer that you're looking for, how to find a different way to get in that space. Right, which I'm sure will serve you, has served you and will serve you as you continue to go forward in this. Speaking of parents, now that you have your own marquee show on HBO and it's only you, have they fully accepted that you're not going back to academia? Oh, man, I think they figured that one out a while ago. Like, I, I think they figured out what's the TV thing. I think when the TV thing really went going, they probably figured it out. Once they realized that this money over here was just a completely different ball game, they really figured it out. And if anything drilled at home, it would probably be my father came to visit me in Miami once before I got out of town. And I had a nice little view there over the intercoastal waterway. And my dad, who has fairly radical left wing politics, stood out there on that balcony with his hands on his hips, just looking at it for like an hour. And then he came back inside and said, you know, I may have to change some of my views on the ruling class. Uh, <laughs> and and, and, and at, at that point, I think they were like, yeah, no, nah, this is going to work. But they... I think the big thing for me about the academic stuff is once they realize that I can still probably make a big impact in the world in this way, then that wasn't their concern anymore. Well, the show has, I don't want to say professorial because that might connote a sort of stuffiness, but there is a, like an academician's approach to trying to deconstruct this stuff that is going on in the world. Yeah. And it does feel to me like you are, not that you're trying to be this, you know, show, I, I do think you've like gone past where you have to show everybody how smart you are, but just the fact, it seems to me, that your bent is that of a professor's kid and uh, uh, someone who spent a lot of time studying and thinking about 
systems and what they mean and what the ramifications are. She said it's true. Yeah. No, that's 100% true. See, the one thing that was beneficial for me about having professor parents is that, like, my dad in particular was the cool professor, right? And so even with my parents being professors in spaces with them and being around people, it's always been about figuring out how to talk directly to people. And so you can have all these ideas, you can have all these thoughts, but you hit on what's important. People don't, people actually like it when you're smart. Nobody's like, yo, I love stupid people, right? People like it when you're smart. They don't like it when you're trying so hard to show them how smart you are. Like if they feel like it's just coming out naturally, then they can roll with it. And so I've never really had a problem, like especially in terms of content with kind of having that approach and explaining things out to people a little bit because I'm going to do it in English, right? Like if I can do it in digestible bites, then I always feel like people can ride with it and they can appreciate the knowledge they gain. Like people's affection for your intelligence has everything to do with what they can get from it. And if all you're doing is basically a masturbatory sort of thing where you're just showing off for people, they're not really going to go for that. But every show that I've ever done has always had that kind of I can't stop approaching things that way because that's the only way I know how to look at things and I ain't found a better way yet. And so it's really helpful for me just to be able to just remember that my brother told me something very early in my career that I've taken with me. And he said, a great argument is not one that a genius can't refute. It is one that a fool can't refute. And you need to make sure that whatever you say, and no matter what, that fool doesn't have anything they can say back. Yeah, your brother's just the best in general. I mean, we could have a little, I don't want to have a whole, we could have a whole fan club about your brother. Oh, yeah. You, too. Uh, you put us old guys together and it, it, uh, <laughs> uh, another, friendship was, uh, another friendship was born. Um, so why is it that this is the show that you feel it's important to make now? Like why this, why this particular show with this particular point of view at this moment in time? You know, why did you say yes to this way of expressing stuff with this uh this sardonic bent kind of soaked throughout it i mean what i loved was it never felt to me like you were just panning for laughs but it did feel like you were showcasing some of the absurdity of the world that we're living in through the lens of looking at how we relate to sport yeah so when i first got the call about this like the show that i agreed to is a much different show than the show that we are doing now. Um, because the show I agreed to had already been kind of mapped out and it was there was a different host that they were planning to do that show around. Um, and then when they brought me on, like we were coming close to needing to get the pilot done and a lot of stuff had already been done. So we just kind of rolled out what was already there. So I would say that if anybody ever saw the pilot that we did for this show, you would not make the argument that it's in my voice. It just wasn't. I didn't know enough to like get my voice into it. We didn't have a big enough team. We didn't I have remember this time. being a real concern because I talked to you a good amount during that process. And I yeah. remember that being a real concern for you. Yeah, like, we, like it, there just wasn't time to do it. And to be fair to all the people who were involved, I didn't know how to really translate my voice into what it was that we were doing in the first place. And so we went through a few months after we got picked up and some things changed and I got the confidence and the awareness of the world that I was in to then be able to say, okay, I want it to look like this. I want it to look like that. Like these are the kinds of things I'm thinking of. And most importantly, you can't really figure out from a pilot what is possible because the budget doesn't give you a full team that can do all the things that you might need to do. So then once we got in here, 
and people started explaining to me a little bit more that we could start and somebody could say, what if we did a museum exhibit um, about Coach K terrorizing black people? And then somebody be like, yeah, that's possible. And then all the things like the first day that we got in after everybody was on the payroll and we got on the, in the office, I sat down and they presented to me the schematics for this museum exhibit that we did for episode one. And it's the first time I'd ever been in a meeting where people were presenting things to me. Like it was the wildest thing. Everybody's looking at me, trying to make sure that they still got my attention. Worry because I looked at my phone, right? Like all of that stuff. Right. But I, re but I remember sitting there looking up and seeing the floor plans and seeing the different ideas and people explaining everything out. And it was one of the most exciting days of my professional life because I just never been in a place where you could figure out how to do all these things. And so once I was like, oh, so we can take these ideas and put them in 3D. Okay, cool. So we got six episodes and we do these longer essays in every episode. Before the writers got on the payroll, I decided what the topics were going to be for all six episodes. And for most of them, wrote out an outline of what my thoughts were on that. And then, so when the writers came in, uh, Stephen Colbert told me the best thing I could do to support my staff was to give them as clear a direction as early as possible. So when they walked in the door, it's like, boom, we got outlines on these big ones. This is the direction that we're going to go in. And so the topical stuff, I come into the meeting and I'm like, okay, this is what I'm thinking about all of these things. And so they're not out there trying to find a perspective for me. I'm giving them what it is. And then they're trying to figure out how to make it sound the best. And then it comes back and we do passes um, and all of that stuff. And so now, everything starts from right here right for better or worse everything starts for me and i don't think to the original question about why is that important in this time however important it is or isn't has never changed from the very beginning and so for me now is the time a for me obviously to do this because they offered it to me but also i am personally in a place of kind of creative freedom and excitement that i haven't been in in a very long time and i think that a lot of the topics that we're going to hit are going to be important not just because they're germane to the world but also i think in our approach and one thing that you're going to find and i think you could find this in the first episode there's going to be probably more intra-group criticism than we see now in the public discourse like we kind of need somebody that's going to be willing to give it to everybody depending upon what's going on right now and that is something that i do think is lacking like we were just bouncing around a topic i don't know if it's even going to make the show about Daniil medvedev the russian tennis player that they're trying to get yes. to denounce putin so he can play in wimbledon and i'm like this doesn't sound like mccarthyism to anybody because i just don't feel like that point comes up that much like for people from the left who would ordinarily it's have a very a complicated test the, the, yeah the purity test thing is never the it's never the right idea right the, the problem is the iconography of sport is so important this is where it's difficult, right? Jesse Owens in Nazi Germany is as powerful as it is because of what it meant and signified to the world. So we understand that the, the power, you know, Marty Glickman not being allowed to run because he was Jewish. Right. That's a power of that, you know, you see the, the significance that gets attached to these sports things. So the Medvedev question is fascinating because I'm a free speech absolutist as you are. Yeah. I hate the idea of a purity test. If he wants to support his country because, or if he's pressured to, or we don't know. I mean, the other really complicated thing is yes. we don't know what kind of leverage fucking Putin has on Medvedev's family. Like right. we have no way to know that. And so to then penalize an athlete, I agree with you on the other hand, and this is what I hope you do. On the other hand, 
if Medvedev wins Wimbledon and takes off his shirt and there's a giant Russian flag underneath it and yeah. he makes that's a really potent thing that I'm sure that they're worried about. So I think it's a tricky issue, right? Yeah. Well, it gets into what it gets into is the trickiness of the notion of the nation state. And as it relates to, yes. the beha- the, to the behaviors of that nation state versus a general afflex- affection for the state itself. Because the thing for me with Medvedev, as I hear this is, hey, man, um, I may or may not be from a country that may or may not have engaged in a somewhat unwanted liberation um, invasion in the year 2003. That may have happened. So in 2003 or 2004, if somebody's asking people to denounce George W. Bush so they can compete in Wimbledon because they find that war to be immoral, what are we doing? Right. And that's where I look at Medvedev with a measure of sympathy. It's not like he asked for Putin to go do this. He may even think it's pretty cool. But there were lots of people in this country that thought the invasion of Iraq was pretty cool. And it not only seemed to be, you know, based on lies, but I don't think it would be fair to put anybody in those positions. It's just the Russians, I think, are in an interesting place in Europe because they're so much like the one that's not like the other. And so they, they're, they're the member of the continent that waged war on much of the continent for well, much of the 20th also, century. Uh, I mean, we can we can argue and at time uh, we can we can tease out the question of how much of a democracy America really is with all the voting rights restrictions. And uh, hey, if people are interested in that, they can they can read a uh, quick free plug for the Eric Holder, Sam Koppelman book that's coming out in a couple months about. Voting oh, really? Rights I didn't know about in this. America. Yeah. Uh, oh. In America, oh yeah, it's, it's it's for you for sure. But um, you know, we can argue about or talk about how much of a democracy America is. But Russia, yeah, dictator- Russia, yeah, Russia, Russia. dictators, Russia's dictatorship, and I think that is sort of what it makes all of this so charged. And and you only have to look at Ivan Drago to know the way in which Russia <laughs> uses their athletes. Right. To be jingoistic. So it's complicated. But I love that that's what you want to talk about on your show because it's so nuanced. And this show gives you because you're not talking in just two minute bites. You're able to actually dive all the way into this question. Yeah. And that's where the topical stuff's going to get tricky because the stuff I want to talk about is not necessarily meant to be talked about quickly. Right. Because we have to do the deeper stuff. We have to plan that out so far ahead to make the essays up to the standard of being on television. And but. I don't know how many people can do this stuff that we're going to be out here doing. We're going to find out, I suppose, if I can do it, but I think I can. But like we have the opportunity to deal with the heavy stuff, to deal with the funny stuff, to put all that stuff together. And there just aren't that many people who have covered sports and been in a position where I think that they could cover this stuff on this platform. So this is just wild, exciting for me in every way. I have a few different questions about when you just said nobody has done this. Have you heard from any legacy journalists who've interacted with HBO ever? Have you heard from, you know, Costas or Gumbel or any of those people? Uh, Have they sort of given you any counsel or congratulated you or welcomed you? Has any of that gone on? Well, I haven't heard from Gumbel. You know, I do a show with Bob, so I've heard from him. And he told me that he thought the first episode was very good. And he's always been helpful, like on that show that I do with him with helping with my essays and things like that. Um, But now Bob had good things to say about this. Um, I'm trying to think if I've heard from anybody. I haven't heard from too many people 
whom I like don't know or didn't necessarily um, expect to hear from. But I thought it was very nice for Bob to reach out. He said tremendous. I just checked the text message and that was very nice of him. I mean, yeah, you would. Uh, it, it, it would be cool if the guy who had the show running for so long, if Gumble would have reached out to you. But, uh, you know, perhaps one is not surprised if one considers everything that 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 he has. Yeah. Maybe he will. Man, I don't even know. Like, I don't know if he's seen it. You know what I mean? Like that's the, that's the kind of thing I don't take personally. Um, at any point, I don't know if Brian Gumble keeps up with what's on HBO. I don't know how Lady stays up. You know. Well, that's interesting when you say about taking personally because I heard you say something on your. I think it was on your podcast. It was somewhere recently. That really caught my ear because I've watched you work. Your your fans have watched this too because you talk about it. But I've watched you kind of grapple with synthesizing the emotions you feel with what you recognize are the emotions that most normal humans feel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the other day you said, uh, on, I think in your podcast, you were like, I caught up with somebody and, and they were like, miss you. And you were like, you know, I can't say miss you to somebody because it's just not how I function you were like i view it people come and people go and if you're friends with somebody they're your friend whether you've spoken to them and i just don't internally you were like i'm not going through that thing of i miss you uh and i but the it's weird because so much of the job you have now is about understanding the way people feel about certain things Mm -hmm. so how do you synthesize that right because you do recognize that you're your feelings matrix isn't a typical one. Yes, yeah, that's the thing. I realize that I've come out of this a little different on the back end than a lot of people. <laughs> but uh, but I can also be aware of like what the trend is in the macro. And I think the big thing for me that I learned over time is there's no room for me to judge people just for not being how I am, right? Like in some of these ways, I think I've kind of evolved and gotten to some places that other people honestly wish they had and wish that they knew how to deal with things as well as I can deal with them in some cases. But it's not because they soft or weak necessarily or anything like that, that they can't do it. Like, I like to think of myself as actually a pretty empathetic figure, right? Like, I like to think of myself as somebody who can see where people are coming from and come to it and in certain ways make them feel better about whatever it is um, that they're dealing with. But like I said something once about on my podcast about how I don't like watch sad movies and stuff like that. And I said, look, I, I'm not really about that wallow. And my producer was just so completely blown away. I had to explain to him, man, look, I just don't do recreational sadness. It's not really my bag. Like, like it's not sadness is not an emotion that typically comes with a lot of positive benefits on the back end. Again, I recognize this makes me a little different than most people, but it doesn't stop me. Like, I'm not looking at it. I'm not the person looking at everybody else like buck up then, damn, you know? Well, right. But I, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, when I, I, I've had occasion to spend some time with sad guru twice uh once uh virtually for an hour and a half and once in person for an hour and like he talks a lot about that we can control if we allow ourselves to we don't have to perform grief we can we can tap into now it's hard for most people to tap into a different mode because of the, the default to i wouldn't say wallowing but the default to recognizing sadness as a an inescapable part of the human experience is present in most people but it's 
you somehow how have you always been like that where where it wasn't one of your like even in career disappointments you know when the first time you lost a radio gig was it surprising to you that you didn't feel sad or it's just hey on to the next like it's just the way you're built no i think it's a callus Right. I think it's much more something kind of built over time. So like, not to get like terribly sad on everybody, but like my best friend in college just didn't wake up one morning when I was 19. That was really, really sad and difficult. And I had to do all the things to, you know, figure yeah, out how to pick horrible, myself up. Just as bad as it gets. Yeah. 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 I had to do a lot to figure out how to pick myself up out of that. But part of what happened on the heels of that was it made me feel like I could overcome anything at that point. You mean once you got through it? Yeah, yeah. Once I got through it, it was like, okay, like I know, I guess I feel like some of those feelings of loss and stuff like that often feel temporary. You know, like I know that it's going to suck for a while, but at some point on the back end, you build it back up. You don't think about it the same way, um, all of these things. And so I guess maybe like the game, theoretician in my mind sometimes plays the game out all the way and like may and maybe i jump some steps right and i skip all the way to where i know it's going to be at the end at the expense of some things um that happen on the way but like career disappointment stuff it can be sad but then it's a pickup so like for me i was embarrassed when like i was very sad when espn.com let me go in 2007 because i felt like i i felt like i wasn't good enough Uh, Or I was made to feel like I wasn't good enough by the people who made the decision. And then when I lost the next radio job, it wasn't because I wasn't good enough. I was offended that I learned about it via a press release. And yeah, when I asked that's, my boss you're about not allowed it, to feel that way. Yeah. 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 Like, like that, that part bothered me, but I knew it wasn't because I wasn't good enough. And I think that experience was actually great for me in terms of handling what these disappointments were, because I still had, after I found out this was happening, I still had to work for two more months. And so what I realized the first day was the only person that's going to be sad if I'm sad, only person that's going to be mad if I'm mad is me. Nobody else Mm. cares, right? And I have, I enjoy doing a radio show. How could I let them take the enjoyment away from me just because they made that decision? And so I went to work every day and I did the radio show like I did it because I realized I never did it for them. I only did it for me, right? They gave me a check, but my, my motivation was never for them. I was sad when the next gig ended because the whole station went out of business and it just didn't feel like my fault and it felt cruel. You know, like it felt like it was taken from us, but it wasn't long after that that I was like, okay, I'm gonna go find something else. And I think that part of that for me is I can feel bad about the loss, but it's just not gonna linger. Like, it's not like I don't feel anything at all. It's just not going to linger or it winds up being what hurts is less like, oh, you canceled the morning Jones then I don't get to do the morning Jones with my friends anymore. Oh, sure. You know? Yes, that makes total yeah, sense. Right. Yeah. But it ain't about the decision that somebody else made just because I realize these are decisions that people there have to make sometimes. And sometimes you're going to be on the wrong end of it. It is not a reflection of anything that's wrong with me. It's a reflection of the state of the business. Well, right. So you're able to, I mean, you said a couple of really important things. I mean, it's the thing you said about understanding the timeline that the natural course of sadness takes has a rhythm and we've just kind of accepted that that's the rhythm that we're going to feel bad and worse and worse and then better and better and better and then it's going to have changed it doesn't mean you don't still wish your friend was alive it just means you're able to think of the whole thing in a way that doesn't 
cause you to turn yourself inside out and yeah. that you've learned how to accelerate that process. You, once you recognized it, somehow you were able to accelerate it going forward. Yeah, I'm good at accepting. I think that's the biggest thing for me. My acceptance game is pretty strong. Right. And that also, I think, leads to, because that thing you said about not, it seems to me you make a decision about whether to feel hurt, whereas most people just feel hurt. And it seems like you make a decision. So if a friend's like, hey, dude, I can't do that, or I can't talk to you because I got to go, some people would just immediately be hurt. And it seems like you go, you take everything into account and you go, well, that's reasonable. <laughs> everything they said makes sense. I'm not, my feelings aren't hurt. Whereas a lot of people, they just go to, my feelings are hurt first. Yeah. And then have to have some big conversation where later they get to, okay, now I understand you. Yeah, I am actively seeking reasons not to take this personally. Whatever this happens to be, I am actively looking for a reason not to take it personally. Because if I've learned anything in my travels, it's usually not personal. It's usually about something involving the other person. And I think that when people get to the place of like really hurting about these things is because they take them seriously. Like I remember when at one job I had with a radio station went out of business and I was on the phone with a friend and I was crying. I, I was in a real bad place. And it was the rare time that I ever have used the phrase, why does this keep happening to me? Right? Like, and I had to shake that because it just didn't make any sense that for two times in a row, everything's rolling well. And then something with the business of this, of the company I work for changes and it affects the direction of my life. Like it right. didn't feel right, but I also knew it wasn't personal. Now, I also think what happens with a lot of people and where I can be like, yo, it's no big deal. It's not personal. Often the issue for people is they want it to be personal. They want it to be about them. Their feelings are hurt because something has not been made about them that they think should have. And I'm not saying that that's an invalid way to look at it, but my tendency is to seek out the reason why I know that this is not personal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's actually really similar to what Sad Guru said to me, and uh, it's 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 very deep, and and uh, I think it's something that we should. I wish I could emulate even more, because uh, I'm pretty good at not defaulting to that stuff, but I can I can get sucked in as everybody can. So yeah, uh, I mean it happen, It can happen. To, like there are things that come up that I do find out like oh well, I think I'm taking that one personally. You know what I mean? Like it's not like it never happens. But well, sure. When the show with Pablo was having struggles and you saw where and, and, and you saw the end before anybody else saw the end. Yeah, I'm sure that dissonance of you knowing this show, you know, Pablo's amazing. I love him. He's going to be successful. I'm good. I'm going to be successful. But this show isn't firing on all cylinders and I don't think I can fix it. That I'm sure this whole thought process helped you get through that yeah yeah because i in that one i think there were definitely things that i would say um that i took personally because i felt there were times where i felt like wow am i the only person that thinks or sees or anything else and like does everybody just think i'm crazy where i think i am i think i am seeing things that make that are really really big deals and very important to be dealt with and addressed and all that stuff and so for me Actually, no, I would, the part that I actually, where it was hardest not to take things personally there was the first time I took a week of vacation, I looked up 
and I watched the show and it felt like everybody was almost relieved that I wasn't there. Like I felt like I had become like overbearing father to them with a lot of the stuff um, that I, you know, that I was bringing up for the ways that I was going about things. And I wasn't upset with them for that. Right. Like if that's how they felt, that's how they felt. But it did really like it made me want to stop and go back and being like, yo, is this is this the way that I am presenting myself to them? Am I like am I putting people in these positions to feel this way? And I never wanted that because the only thing I wanted was for that to be the best show that it possibly could. Um, and feeling like people are relieved that you're not there is not really a positive feeling. Now, if those people feel relieved that you're not there because they can then do all the stuff that you thought were bad ideas um, and then they do them because you're not there, that sucks. But it also was kind of like, oh, okay, I am kind of vindicated and having to kind of lean on people a little bit about this because if I didn't, they'd be doing this dumb shit in my presence. <laughs> I did think it was very nice to, uh, to see Pablo wish you luck on the show and all that stuff on social media. I felt like I, I was very happy about that. That's all I'll say. Uh, no, I'm sure good you saw see. it. Yeah, you saw it, right? Yeah. So if that show wasn't firing in a way that you felt it was going to attract your desired viewer who how would you describe who your prime audience member is like your idealized viewer receiver of what it is that Bomani Jones does my idealized viewer is really just somebody who values honesty and I think like there's nobody who's like, yo, you watch my show, I'm gonna give you the lies, right? Like, like, like nobody, nobody ever presents themselves as that person. But for me, the idealized viewer for me is a person who is looking to go deeper on some of these topics, right? A person who wants to go beyond the level of conversation that is most common um, in the zeitgeist when it comes to whatever it is that I'm talking about, but it is also a person who has no time for pretense and airs, right? Like my idealized version is really, per, a viewer is really a regular dude. Like I used to try to tell Pablo or explain to him when we were doing High Noon, like, look, when you out walk in the streets with me, do you see who the people are who stop and talk to me? It's dudes screaming out of their truck they driving for work. It's cats walking down the street with their names on their shirts, you know, like, it is just, it's almost the median American, right? Like that's who we get to speak to when you start talking about sports is you get such a broad, like it's so broad up and down the class spectrum in terms of who you talk to and across the spectrum of race and all of that stuff, gender, not nearly as much, but you know, it's there. And so I'm looking dead in the middle at that viewer. Like I'm trying to teach to the middle of the classroom, not to the slowest person, not to the fastest person, but to the middle person in the classroom, if it's a time to teach, to use that example. And that's really who I see and people who, whether they real, people who are open-minded, whether they realize it or not, right? People who are able to see 
what they have in common with people who don't look like them, for example, who have had travels and life experiences that have put them in places where they get to see and observe that. Like those are the people who see my stuff and are like, oh, okay, I really get it here. Yeah, you made me think of a lot of different things there because teachers in the middle of the classroom makes a lot of sense, but it also seems like at the same time you're kind of out of the corner of your eye trying to communicate with the smartest kid in the classroom too. Oh, yeah, but the thing is, it's not that hard to talk to that person, to both of those people at the same time. And I think that's the mistake that people make is the trick in this is to take the smart stuff and make it simple. It's not to take the simple stuff and make it hard. The masturbatory game is to take the simple and try to take it up to this larger place. But I'm going to try to take these complex ideas and bring them somewhere to where that person in the middle can get them. So like when I would teach economics to freshmen, the thing I realized very quickly is that they all understood the concepts. They didn't understand the jargon. They didn't realize that all the things we were telling them were things that they observed in their lives every day. So I was a great TA, not necessarily to make your or professor, not necessarily to make your grades better, but you would walk out of there realizing that you understood it. And that's the part that I'm trying to get to more than anything else is just make sure that person in the middle can understand it. And you can also do this in a way where the smart person sees something that they didn't see before because they thought they had it, but they don't. I mean, that's brilliant and uh, such a great, uh, valuable uh, thing to be able to do if you can do it, which you can. I thought the key moment, look, that Duke thing was absolutely brilliant in every way and hilarious and just perfect. And the key line in it, I wondered after watching if how many people missed it. And I wondered if even Coach K would miss it, which of course is when you say, I am not saying Coach K is racist. I'm saying that you are. <laughs> and, you know, talking to, the, uh, talking to the audience. Was that idea in your head from the beginning that you were going to make that, you were going to pull that kind of switcheroo? No, the idea, and I think a writer actually threw that in. The idea came about because HBO legal, and I'm not convinced, by the way, that this is at all a legal matter because at no point in the script did we intimate that Mike Krzyzewski was racist or give any, but they were insistent that we put something in there to say that we weren't calling him a racist. White folks get re white folks get way more sensitive about somebody being called a racist than any racism that actually exists in life. And so they're like, oh, we got to do that. And so there was the, hey, let me be clear. We're not saying he's a racist paragraph, but it definitely was necessary to add that last part to make the point but racism is in large part while we're here like racism is the only purpose for race to exist whether people like it or not it's not just well the then you run that i mean you people. you then ran you run that that just incredible litany of i mean just one after another in this montage of people describing the duke players versus the way they would describe players on other teams and the racism it's just baked so deeply into, I mean, and of course it reminds you of that moment with Baines and Malcolm when Baines is um, opening up the dictionary and he's explaining to them, he's explaining to Malcolm, uh, you know, the difference between white and black in the dictionary and these words. And he's like, is that what you, and it, and you see that that is the way that that's perpetuated in the way that you put that hung together. 
But was that something that you had consciously noticed as that all was hap- happening? Meaning, oh yeah, I mean, you would watch a game, or you would watch that Fab Five film, or you knew because you're. I, I don't like the UNLV game. You were too young for the UNLV game. Oh no, right? I remember that game. I remember those very clearly. I remember those very clearly. So let me tell you what the thing is. And my brother and I were talking about this, and he put it in a great way that I hadn't thought about. And this is something that there aren't that many white people that can relate to. Do you know what it's like to have media just shit on your heroes year after year after year? Like all these teams that we loved, we're watching them get, we're listening to them be denigrated, you know, even under the guise of ostensible compliments sometimes. We're watching them just be denigrated and reduced. And um, you watch the Duke game and it would just be completely different. You could just watch the way that everybody perked up and, and it continued for you know decades. And you'd watch it and it was just so clear. You are rooting for these guys to beat these other guys. There's no question about it. And it is unwavering, no matter who the announcer is, you are rooting for these guys to beat our squad. And at that point, every double standard just jumps off the screen, even if you're 11, 12 years old. And you were aware of that. See... I had I met Coach K uh, 20 years ago. I don't know him. I do not know him at all. But I spent I met him and got to spend time with him. And after that, I became a Duke fan after that because watching the way he talked to people and handled people and dealt with some situation I saw him deal with, I was like, because I was like, that guy is so impressive. Uh, and I did. I became a Duke fan, except when you have Grayson Allen on that team and, <laughs> and he is the only at the time, maybe he was the only thug in the whole league, you know, in all of college basketball. And, and I remember being, I remember feeling disappointed that coach K didn't sit him. Wouldn't hold him accountable at all. Didn't hold him accountable. And I didn't understand it. And, and, and imagine which you're, show made me think about i mean imagine like all the criticism john thompson got for not changing alan iverson let's say where's the like because right when alan iverson got to the league some people felt like well why didn't thompson x y and z even though alan left and they didn't get you know i guess they didn't get along right thompson and, and iverson but uh why does coach k not when, when every time grace and allen kicks somebody in the cock <laughs> in the NBA, uh, I can't help but think, like, whose fault that is? Yeah, it's his parents' fault and his fault and the system's fault. But it's also Coach K's fault, right? To some yeah, extent. we actually had a line that we had to cut where we referred to Grayson Allen as Duke's last OG. We just couldn't get it in there. Like, he's the you last You couldn't just say he's Duke's breed. Marvin Barnes? You should have just said yeah. he's Duke's <laughs> Marvin Barnes. <laughs> you just, we just couldn't figure it out. Um, but, like... The, 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 the Grayson Allen thing in particular was interesting with Krzyzewski because we demand coaches hold their players accountable. That's always the thing when they act up. And Krzyzewski, on one hand, you can halfway respect it that he just refused to you know set him out there to the wolves, and I could get that. But no, he kept doing it over and over again. And then he did one of the more offensive things is he hit him with one of those indefinite suspensions that was for a game. Like, that was it. And Krzyzewski somehow, very few people are as famous as him and absolved of any criticism 
in the way that he has. Even the things that you hear that are terrible, like when 30 years ago, he didn't like what they wrote in the Duke Chronicle about the team. And so he called them all in and dressed them down. We just kind of write that as a detail of the Coach K story. Not everybody could get away with that. Like, that's the most fascinating thing to me is the Teflon element. I did feel like this year he got shit for yelling at the opposing player. And uh, right on some level, he did get some shit for having yelled at the opposing player when he lied about it and then was kind of caught. Yeah, he got some of that, but he should have. He embarrassed himself in that game in Durham with the way he handled it afterward, where he said that the performance was unacceptable while those players were forced to sit there through that ceremony. Um, the whole story after that game, none of it should have been about his career. All of it should have been about what an undignified end that was for him and how cruel that was to his players for him to em- embarrass them like that at his party while they but had to sit there what do you think about the whole idea? And what, but what about the broader question about college basketball while we're talking about this, which is... When they win, it's the coach's glory, and when they lose, it's the player's fault. More so in college than in the pros. I will say it all depends on the coach because the one thing about college basketball is once we decide you can't coach, it is always your fault. It is so hard to work your way out of the you can't coach bucket. And college basketball has so many guys who can't coach that it's the easy default to throw them in there. But like once I decide you can't coach, you just can't coach that's the only part but once it's determined that you can coach nobody gets on you so Krzyzewski's a great example of that Krzyzewski gets out coach Hubert Davis out coached him in that game at Carolina nobody's going to say that because coach K is so made you never question whether or not he can coach Calipari who still has to answer questions to people as to whether or not he can coach even though he got to a sweet 16 with a team whose best player was Lou Rowe they lose those games we will look at him that's my man because he did the he did the cameo, and I spent the day with him. I'm a, if you if I spend a day with you and you're an NCAA Division One coach of one of the twenty teams, I'm a sucker. I'm you're your an guy. easy audience. That's it. You're an easy I audience. Well, I, come on, I don't know. My job isn't to criticize them. Coach KK uh, Cal came to our set. He was incredible with everybody. He knew all his lines. He committed. He was a total pro. That's my guy. I want his team to win every game. <laughs> I root for them now. I'm just very easy that way. I am. Yeah, I'm okay so, with Cal. Cal. Cal's good with me. He's a, he's a riot, that guy. Here's a question. You're so gifted extemporaneously, and this show is mostly written. Written by you and a team of of writers who are great. I know two of the writers. They're terrific. Um, But, and now sometimes structure gives freedom, but sometimes it feels constricting. So how, how have you adjusted to that? And how does that work for you? And then how do you decide when you're gonna throw a little spin on something or not that is a great question i've been waiting on somebody to ask me honestly um the biggest challenge is that right i don't like when i do a podcast or tv i don't work off notes or any of that stuff 
you are getting it straight from me and i love the energy that comes from that i got a decent a decent sense of timing and knowing when to wind it down knowing when to ramp it up or whatever but you can't make television like that not this kind of television it's just not an option like people need to know things legal needs to know things everything else like levels that i just hadn't considered until i started doing something like this and so the challenge right now actually is there's not as much time to rehearse that stuff as you would like some of it is still being worked out as you go like i realized when we got to the pilot part of why it was easy for me was i've been working on those lines for weeks that's not really the option in the same way it is here and so the shooting itself for me isn't hard because it's just like yo we got an hour we sit down in the studio we knock this out but i am trying to figure out how to replicate the energy of doing it off the top of my head while also having to look at this teleprompter and read it and all of that stuff. So the challenge for our writers, and I've told them, I realize I have charged them with something counterintuitive. I need you to write something that doesn't look like somebody wrote it. I need it to be written to be said. And so writing generally as a practice is thought of as something to do as a step up in sophistication from the spoken word right? Like you, the written word, because you have more time and you can get it absolutely perfectly and all of that stuff. But these words aren't going to be written. These words are going to be heard and thereby they need to be felt. They need to be written in ways that I can say them easily, right? Like a great run of alliteration is fantastic until you out here trying to say all those B words in a row. Like it's not, ne- you know, yeah. it's not necessarily yeah. that easy. And so what I'm doing and where it's helpful for me to do like the last pass after we get it back from the writers is that's where I'm going in. And I'm like, I know exactly how I'd say this straight to the point. Now, what I got is a lot of comedy writers. And what I'm trying to also get them to understand is I'm not a comedian. Like I was talking to one of my guys and he said something about, I think that's a good point, but it's not comedy. And I'm like, do not discount the value of a good point. Like trust that I have a gift of my voice, like the actual voice, the one you're hearing through your speakers, that I know how to manipulate these words and how to flip them and then put them in. So like there was one line in there where we said something about you scratch a record at Danny Ferry's house and you got and you owe him a new Toto record. I told him to put it in. They're like, I don't know if that's funny. I was like, wait till I say it. Right. It was it's like hilarious. Wait. First of all, right. that's just hilarious. Any way you look yes. at it, that's hilarious. And when they heard me say it, that then led to thinking of another line to put behind it. You see what I mean? So, but it's just a matter of, for me, I want to keep this simple because once we keep it simple, then I can give you energy as opposed to trying to make sure I execute these ups and downs in the exact way that a writer would have intended. No, let's make this simple. Let's play it straight. And then when that happens, people hear it like in the passes and in the takes and they're like, oh, okay, that's the lane that he's in. And so I found myself as we went through the taping, getting more and more comfortable in that space of being there where I'm like, okay, I can do this now and it's going to sound like I said it, not like I'm going through this carefully rehearsed piece that we've been writing for weeks. Can you throw some American twist on a line at the last minute if you want to? And as if you're growling, can you just yeah. slide? I mean, like that one moment that you cracked everyone in the room up, was that written or was that extemporaneous? I think that one was written. Um, I got to get more freedom with the extemporaneous. Like, I, like I'm getting, you know, this is just part of what I'm getting used to. Um, but well, I know yeah, I've because got- I'm sure you're worried about, well, you don't want to deviate and then throw the rhythm of the thing off. But exactly. in a way, you have to. You have, Like you said, you have a good enough sense of words that right. you'll know how to glide yourself back in. Yeah, uh, yeah. I got, like, I got the, yeah. I've got the flexibility to do it. If for no other reason, then I could do that shit five times after you tell me to stop. What you going to do? 
oh, you're going to put that in there, aren't you? Lessons I learned from the pilot. Like, nope, that line's getting rewritten, buddy. Right. If you need to, you will. And then yeah. you, they can come back to you and you can do it again and you can, right? So uh, that makes total sense. Do you think a lot in, in this because it is written and because you are picking your subjects not very last, not, you know, last minute, do you have to think about the question of punching up and punching down and where you are vis-a-vis various potential targets? Yeah, so we got some pushback from some people, and I don't think that this was necessarily an unfair point from them about us joking about Brittany Griner, and their argument was, we don't know how she's doing in jail. It feels like it's a little bit too early to joke, and I don't. Like, like, like I, I, I did think that there was room to joke about the fact that they popped her for weed at the airport, and that led to some levels that'll go back and forth. Um, I mean, the weed so- dealer line was hilarious. Uh I I think that probably is the one thing I questioned was just like I'm worried for her that person so yeah. oh but- yeah we're oh yeah oh yeah we're worried too don't get me wrong right like it's not that we're not worried um my original take on that though was hey can we all acknowledge that we don't have any idea what's going on here which I don't feel like anybody did when she first went in it turned into an agenda contest right if you want to use this to talk about how WNBA players don't get paid enough you got that you want to use this to talk about Putin you got that we got all these different directions that we could go in I just decided to go in for some fun now could you make an argument that we're punching down on somebody in her position you certainly could as I hear that and think about it maybe if had to do over again maybe you wouldn't have done that topic I think that's a fair point to make. But I do generally give a level of consideration to that because if for no other reason than people people care about what I think and people care about what I say. Not every single person, but a lot of them do. And I do think that that comes with a measure of responsibility, whether I think they should care so much about what I say or not. And with that responsibility, I do think it's fair to like stop and think about how somebody who might respect you may view this if you're talking about them. So I definitely always want to be as fair as possible, even with the jokes. That's a perfect place for us to end. My friend, I know you have a lot of stuff. I can't imagine the amount of press you're doing between now and the next episode. It must just be uh, crashing on you like waves. So go get ready to do the next thing. Everyone should watch Game Theory. Uh, I will say, and that's on uh, HBO. You can watch it on HBO Max. However you watch HBO, you can watch it between now and when the second episode comes on. The second episode has just come out as you're listening. Watch that. Get ready to watch the third episode. I, Bo, I, I cannot believe that I don't have a Game Theory coffee mug. So your I don't either, excuse. though. The only come one on, I've dude. seen I is on the it. desk. I, that's the I, only I, one I will I've say, seen. It's the, I collect one thing. I collect one thing, coffee mugs, and I don't have a fucking mug. I'll just say there's something wrong with that. I'm going to see what I can do. I'm going to work on that. Bomani Jones, thank you for doing this. You can find Bomani everywhere. Watch his show. You can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter, and I will see you next time.